0: Why don't we ask our candidates what they think about government? What's their philosophy towards public life? How do they think the world works? So Millet came to all these ideas as an economist. It was really (laughs) striking to hear him say all this stuff. Rothbard called himself an an anarcho-capitalist. And so now Millet calls himself uh, that. I've lived with the term for so long. I just assumed everybody knew what it was, but it turns out nobody,
1: nobody knows what that means.
0: In part is a reaction against the anarcho-socialists. that didn't believe in private property. They didn't believe in capitalism, obviously, because the protection of private property is most compatible with the thing we all want, which is peace with our neighbors.
1: One of the principal sources of the wealth creation in the West, Western Europe and so forth from the 12th, 13th, 14th century, was the protection of private property. That's why the Klaus Schwab World Economic Davos idea that you will own nothing and you will be happy is an extremely sinister
0: idea is likely to take us right back to the 12th century. They created mass disorder and disorientation and confusion. We're far from having recovered from that. The answers are there for us. They're right in front of us. We know what they're missing out Getting from here to there, it's going to require things that people are really not prepared to do.
1: Argentina's new president, Javier Milei is a former goalkeeper for a well-known soccer club and the lead singer for a Rolling Stones cover band. He also taught for more than 20 years as university professor of macroeconomics, economics of growth, microeconomics, and mathematics for economists. Mm -hmm. Uh, An iconic moment in in his campaign for president was a video that went viral where he's dressed up in a yellow and black suit with a mask and a cape. Singing Giuseppe Verde's classical operatic piece, La Traviata, as an anti money printing parody. His aides shouted as the song ended a round of applause for Javier, General ANCAP. ANCAP is short for anarcho capitalist, the new president's proclaimed ideology. Millet believes the state is not the solution, the state is the problem. I'm here with Jeffrey Tucker, my old friend wonderful man jeffrey tucker you founded brownstone institute based in part on this idea you are also an outstanding protege of murray rothbard who coined the term i find it all very appealing but there are obviously a lot of practical problems with it so what's this all about
0: i have to say uh, it's something of a refreshing thing to see a head of a state at least proclaim a philosophy. I mean, that's the first thing that's kind of <laughs> remarkable. You know, I, I wish actually that I've thought of this about this for years. Like, why don't we ask our candidates what they think about government? You know, what what's their philosophy towards public life? How do they think the world works? It obviously impacts on how they're going to be governed, but I don't recall ever hearing a person being asked that question. The last uh, candidate last a major figure we've had in, uh, at any high levels in the United States who had a philosophy of governing was Ronald Reagan, of course, you know. And so,
1: well, you know, you you mentioned it. I actually said to somebody this morning. He reminded me of Reagan in this sense, mm-hmm. is that Reagan spent ten years on the road giving his speeches for GE, and he spent every single day reading. Uh, the great the great writers and thinkers developing his own views about that and writing his speeches. And so he developed a deep bedrock philosophy. And the reason I mentioned Miley's twenty years as economist is that he did the same thing. I mean he he knows his stuff and he knows what works and what doesn't work. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing that you and I think. I think it's a fantastic uh, uh place to start and he's gonna have so many enemies
0: i think he might withstand the uh the the barrage maybe and uh, he's fighting philosophically uh, in the first instance which i find just intriguing at least people know exactly what he believes and he says it with a great deal of confidence he says you know the state has failed uh the market works freedom works uh government management doesn't does not he gave yesterday a long talk about the failure of socialism, communism, fascism, central planning, uh, political uh, despotism over society, and about the virtues and beauties of freedom itself, and how <clears throat> business needs to be uh, free of regulations, and we need to have enforcement of property rights at all levels of society. It was really <laughs> striking to hear him say all this stuff. So Millet came to all these ideas as an economist, and and As you probably know, there's a great deal of of mainstream economics that's very vulnerable to uh, attack or I would say like actually falling apart once you examine it carefully. And this is what happened to him. He started looking at it, um, uh, particularly on the question of industrial organization, antitrust theory and monopoly and bumped into the work of Murray Rothbard, who uh, I, I think Uh, has written some of the most compelling critiques against mainstream monopoly, antitrust, competition theory there are. I mean, he was actually better than his own mentor, who was Ludovic Mises, who's just great. But Rothbard uh, became very precise on this stuff and really just shredded the whole thing. And Millet said that after he read that, uh, he realized he'd been teaching the, the subject incorrectly for the last you know 20 years yeah. and uh, went through a major intellectual metamorphosis and then obviously started uh, feeling as if Rothbard had a lot to say about a lot of subjects and so threw himself into it. Um, my guess is he read the last section of uh, Rothbard's great uh, treatise called Man, Economy and State, and it's a section where it's called power and market actually it was published as a separate book now it's all together in one but it's a wonderful thing because it takes apart every conceivable form of government intervention in the economy and shows what's wrong with it i mean it's really quite a relentless i if there's one thing i just give every you know would-be statesman something to read it would be this because it just shreds the whole apparatus of, of government itself. And I think that's what pushed Mele over the over the top. Now, Rothbard called himself an, an anarcho-capitalist. And so now Mele calls himself uh, that, which is a, f- a funny term. And I've had um, my inbox just flooded, actually, ever since his rise. The people asking me, what is this anarcho-capitalism? Which makes me laugh because I guess I you know, I've lived with the term for so long. I just assumed everybody kind of knew what it was, but it turns out. Nobody, nobody
1: knows what that means.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you,
1: you may be the only person.
0: <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Uh, Murray came up with the term in part as a reaction against... Um, the anarcho-socialists. So in New York intellectual uh, culture, everybody who proclaimed themselves an anarchist, and this is true for a large part of the 20th century, had socialist leanings, syndicalist leanings, socialist leanings. They didn't believe in private property. They didn't um, believe in capitalism, obviously. I mean, Noam Chomsky is a good example of that.
1: Well, a guy well, who claims well, it. well, calling yourself an anarchist in New York, particularly Greenwich Village, was yeah. a great way to meet girls. It was a very, it was a very sexy thing
0: to be countercultural. Yeah. So yeah, the anarchism has generally belonged to the left. Uh, Like, yeah, I have to look back even to to Marx. I mean, Marx called himself an anarchist uh, because all the socialists called themselves anarchists. Well, uh, Murray's view uh, was that, and he got this view in part from. Uh, his mentors, Ayn Rand and von Mises, <clears throat> was that if you leave people alone, they will figure out how to create private property and how to protect it. Because the protection of private property is most compatible with the thing we all want, which is uh, peace with our neighbors. You know, You, you mm-hmm. can't have peace with your neighbors unless you recognize what's the difference between mine and thine. That's how we get along with each other, recognizing who owns what. So in the course of human evolution, we've, we've figured out how to obtain peace with each other through protection of, of our rights to private property and uh, the freedom to exchange that property. That's how we benefit from each other is by recognizing uh, and respecting property rights and then engaging in trade with each other. So well,
1: well, well, as you pointed out, as you wrote in your piece in the Epic Times, mm-hmm. it's not a plan. Right. It's a prediction. And it's right. a prediction of what you come up with after people interact voluntarily with each other.
0: That, that's the critical thing. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a view on the left that's been pervasive for a very long time that we only have private property because of a ruling class imposition of some law or some uh, conspiracy by the courts or by the king or something. And uh, it was Murray's view. Uh, as as was uh, his mentor, Mises and Ayn Rand, that you have private property because of the existence of certain limits in the world, that limit being scarcity, which is to say we can't all own the same thing at the same time. That's not possible. I mean, this coffee cup is mine. Um, if somebody takes it from me, it's no longer mine. That's why we need to figure out some rules for the engagement of the material world. And the number one rule we've come up with is private property. It didn't have to be imposed by the king or a court. It could be protected by a king or protected by a court, but it can also be protected by private title companies, which exist all over the United States and always have in the history of capitalism.
1: Well, you see a lot of claims for private property in kindergarten. It's a fairly, <laughs> it's a fairly basic instinct we have that this is mine.
0: Yeah, and so the the idea of of Rothbardian uh, anarchism was to say, well, I'm I'm an anarchist, but I believe in private property, and it wasn't just over things like consumer goods or the things around me. Uh, he believed strongly that there should be private property in the means of production itself, namely capital. Okay, so so he thought that capitalism itself was an outgrowth of voluntary interaction. If you leave everybody alone, they will, on their own, create capitalism. Well, so, yeah, that was an unusual view, actually. Well, well,
1: I've, I've thought for a long time, and you've studied this much more than I have, but one of the principal sources of the wealth creation in the West, Western Europe and so forth from the 13th, 14, 12th, 13th, 14th century, was the protection of private property. And as we evolved from a feudal society to a bourgeoisie with property and and ownership of the means of production and things like that, that was the thing that drove the dramatic growth in the economy and the innovation. You 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 own your innovation. The king didn't own it.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I guarantee you, you can look around the world today and find, and you know, the poorest societies in the world, and they, the, one of the reasons, the major reason they're they're poor, is because they don't protect uh, property over capital. And so you look at a place like, like Haiti, what happens, you know, everybody in Haiti is entrepreneurial, they're enterprising, they're working hard, they're, they're not lazy people, lazy bums, whatever, they, everybody's working hard. The problem is, anybody gets rich and develops you know a pool of capital from which they can hire laborers and invest in the future it gets pillaged by the state right. so the absence of private property and capital is a major reason for for poverty and um it's also the case that without private property and capital you don't have an exchange of capital so you can't have financial markets And then you don't have prices attached to those capital and without those prices, you can't have accounting and without accounting, you can't have profit and loss. Without profit and loss, you have no idea what you're doing. So the whole society collapses into chaos.
1: uh, That's why the Klaus Schwab world economic Davos idea that you will own nothing and you will be happy is an extremely sinister idea and is likely to take us right back to that 12th century.
0: Kind of, it's a it's a weird view. Uh, it's almost he's saying you will own nothing, but maybe he and his friends will. will own everything. <laughs> we'll own everything you
1: know, so. so you you point out that, and I think this is an important distinction. He's been called right wing. And you, you talk about the right in France, the right in Prussia, the right yeah. in America. Talk, amplify that. Yeah,
0: I don't. So I, I re, we have to reject this language of, of right wing to apply to somebody like Mila it, or anybody with a, uh, a, a classical liberal impulse like this. Um, there is such a thing as a political right. Uh, in, in France, it was attached to the, uh, the partisans of the, of the old regime right, the opponents of the French Revolution and the people who wanted unity and state and church. That's true throughout Europe, and that's true in the Prussian um, uh, Empire uh, uh, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Hegel said, look, what we really need is complete unity between the church and the state, and then everything in society should follow along to that lead. The state and the church together are godlike. Okay, so that was considered right wing in 1820 in Prussia. Right wing in uh, the UK and sort of uh, Commonwealth countries has always been about a Tory control. It was about uh, the the lands attached to the monarchy and the preservation of a kind of a traditionalist hierarchical society. Okay, so that that was what right wing meant in France and Prussia in the UK. Uh, uh, right wing in the United States doesn't really have much of a history, really, before the twentieth century, and mostly it was used as an epithet to uh, yeah. throw at anybody who resisted socialism. But if you wanted to identify right wing in America, if you wanted to do that, it would be associated with sort of Hamiltonian industrial protectionism and mercantilism, that kind of stuff. Anyway,
1: well, it's so- also it's also associated with the religious right who wants to That's- use the state to enforce. Their idea about what ought to be. So it's still using the state and not, yeah. not, not letting voluntary exchange or, or free choice uh, rule the outcome.
0: Uh, and it's very tempting in our, in our times to, to, cause we get so, so uh, bludgeoned by the left. Yeah. Uh, we, we get tired of it and they keep calling us right wing. At some point, you just want to go. Okay, fine. I'm right wing. <laughs> you know, I get it. I, you know, I understand it. But it's, it's like not... being called a racist. <laughs> yeah, kind <laughs> of right. But it's not historically correct. And so I, I really yeah. do wish people would would drop that and re- really resist that tendency. Um, these ideologies of left and right are not. Uh, neither of them were really protect- consistently protective of of the idea of human rights and freedom. And freedom is the the word around which I've rallied my entire life, that's where my intellectual imagination was kicked off. Uh, when I was in, when I was in high school, I fell in love with this whole idea of freedom. So, uh, the true partisans of freedom, um, we can borrow from the left and borrow from the right, but what we're trying to do is cobble together a, a different outlook. And one version of that is what me um, pushing forward as, as anarcho capitalism. Now, uh, uh, you made a, a point earlier, and I think it's worth uh, reinforcing. This is not a plan. This is not a plan for society. It's not a central plan. It's not It's not like here's my legislation, anarcho-capitalist legislation to recreate society in, in my ideological form. That's not it at all. That is to let society alone defend human rights, defend uh, private property, as, as understood widely within the community of owners. And, and then let society evolve on its own. So it's it's the opposite of a central plan. The other thing is that <clears throat> anarchists were typically utopians. They imagined that they would recreate human nature in some way. Marx believed this. Every socialist believes this. That once we achieve their great revolution, we'll all change as, as people in some way. Become, I don't know, compassionate or sharing. No, it, or,
1: but, the, but the idea, and I think it's true and not it, it's not well understood, is that, this is absolutely not about anarchy, and that people, if left alone, they don't end up in a state of nature where everybody's fighting for everything. They end up cooperating. They end up dealing with each other. They respect each other's rights, and they they, they create contracts that they enforce. Uh, you know, they've got they've got law, the common law that that uh, protects rights and and contracts, and it's 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 an orderly society that promotes freedom and well-being and yeah. it's just the opposite of anarchy
0: yeah um murray often endorsed uh Proudhon's uh, slogan that order is not uh the mother but the daughter of liberty uh he often said this you know that first you need liberty and then the result is an orderly society and the state itself is the source of disorder and that's empirically true Anywhere you want to look in the world today, whether it's the United States or Argentina or anywhere, China for that matter, um, the state has always believed that it's a source of order. But actually, society contains within itself the capacity to create its own orderly. Let
1: let, let me try an example near and dear to us. We were both fierce opponents of the lockdowns and everything that happened with COVID. And you look at what the state did, the federal state local governments and locking people down. They shut down this business, declared it was non-essential, and so on and so forth. They went in and, and decided in their infinite wisdom to, to, you can do this, you can't do that, rule from on high. And what they did is they broke the economy and we're still paying the price because the economy is a whole set of micro-relationships among people and businesses and each other, supply chain, things like that. All these All these edicts from the state Wrecked an economy which was actually doing just fine, thank you. And now we're still uh, we're still trying to heal that.
0: They said in those days that they didn't care what happens to the economy because the economy is just the stock market. Um, that, that, <laughs> that's that's what Fauci said. I'll leave the stock market to others. I mean. The economy is what we do every day. Real, real
1: quick, make, give us the distinction between the financial economy and the real
0: economy. The real economy is what we buy and sell and consume and what we do and it's what we work and it's our charitable giving. And the, it's, it's, it's the paying the bills of the church you're going to this weekend. Uh, you know, it's, it's everything that we do in the material world. Uh, that is what we call the economy. And it's that's not-
1: what we're talking about. It's not, yeah. the, it's not the stock market.
0: No. It, and and so they, they said, oh, who cares what happens to the stock market? We've got a disease on the loose. Well, they ruined everything. They ruined education. They ruined uh, a church going. Uh, they r- ruined our ability to go see our families yeah. uh, if they're sick, to gather for weddings and funerals. That's the economy. The economy is how we live. Uh, Mises always had the, had this great slogan. He said, economics is the pith of life. I always like that because it's the pith mean meaning the pith. The, yeah. It's a metaphor from the tree. The, the pith is okay. the, the, the thing inside the tree, the thick, the thickness that makes the tree grow. And he said it was the pith of life itself. And therefore, it's the proper study of every, every human being. So yeah, they were very dismissive towards the economy. And uh, that was very dangerous because it has shattered culture. It's shattered our psychology. Our health has never been worse. We've never been more depressed. Mental illness, substance abuse, uh, learning loss, uh, isolation from our our neighbors, meanness in general. (laughs) It's all taken a toll since lockdowns.
1: Well, that's a topic of conversation all the time now. With a lot of my friends, we get together and we say, people seem to be changed and it's uh it's 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 hard to it's hard to describe,
0: but it's real. I agree with you and so here's a great example the the state uh, attempted to impose an order on us and look what they did. They created mass disorder and disorientation and confusion. We're far from having recovered from that.
1: Well Murray Rothbard took it all the away. He didn't think we needed a state at all. in other right. words, if we're going to get together to if we need roads or bridges or things like that instead of the state doing it, we'll develop a voluntary group that gets together and we'll pitch in and we'll make that happen. That's a tough, that's a
0: tall order. It is a tall order, but you know, Murray always proposed this as an intellectual challenge. He would always ask you, uh, can you think of anything that society needs, necessarily, absolutely needs to have done that the state can do better? than people can, then people can on their own working through voluntary interactions and exchanges. I mean, that's, that's the way Murray put the challenge to me. And I thought over, I thought, I thought about it for many months, did a lot of reading. I couldn't come up with anything. And so I came up to him because I didn't, you know, here's the thing. I didn't want to be an anarchist, you know, <laughs> I mean, do I look like an anarchist? I mean, I didn't want to be an anarchist. Well, you so,
1: don't look the part, but I, I, I,
0: <laughs> but I said, I said to my... That, beneath that uh,
1: rather dapper exterior lies a real revolution. <laughs> <I know that. laughs>
0: so I didn't want to be an anarchist, you know, at all, you know, and, and, um, but he was making me very uncomfortable, and I finally thought about it a long time, and I finally, the next time I saw him, I said, Murray, I've been thinking about this a lot. So if I conclude that there's something that definitely needs to be done in society, uh, that, that, that there is, there's nothing that we definitely need, that the state is, uh, by definition and by experience, better at doing than society itself. Uh, if I can make that conclusion, does that make me an anarchist? And he said, well, certainly it makes you an anarchist. That's what you are. <laughs> I took a be- big, deep breath and I said, well, I guess I'm an anarchist. And he was, you know, he was a darling man. He was quite short and very uh, um, effusive and exuberant. And he just jumped up in the air like, like, a, like a little elf, <laughs> leaped through, yeah, three <laughs> feet forward and grabbed my hand and said, well, I'm so glad, Jeffrey, you're, you're an anarchist. You're an anarchist now. And I was like, oh, okay. So every time I have these discussions with people, uh, and that same more or less conversation is replicated. I always uh, try to reproduce <laughs> his mannerisms.
1: <laughs> so, so, but, you know, we're digging into this a bit. Another thing you, you point out is that this is, there are lots of people who might call themselves this, but there are lots sure. of different versions of yeah. it. I mean, sure. you know, we all, I, you know, I was all caught up in Ayn Rand and Atlas sure. Shrugged and Fountainhead, But Ayn Rand believed in the state. She did. And so there's a distinction between what we're talking about and what she thought.
0: Uh, there is. Uh, so he was a real fan of Ayn Rand. But, and I, I really have to say this name on this podcast because it doesn't get any attention. Uh, the name of the man who actually converted Murray to the anarchist side, uh, his name is Frank Chodoroff. So it's mm. C H O D Chad Orov, and he was the son of uh, some Jewish uh, immigrants, who, I think from Russia in the eighteen nineties. But was a very prominent writer. He used to write a little bit for National Review, but um, wrote for the New Individualist. Um, he started um, what is now today called the Intercollegiate uh, Studies Institute, which used to be the International Society of Individualists. Um, a really important writer in post war America in in New York intellectual circles. And even now, his, his writing is really compelling. But um, he and Murray became really good friends. Uh, Charteroff famously said, if any, anybody dares to call me a conservative, I'll give him a punch in the nose. So, you know, he was he was just a really good libertarian anarchist, but unusual. Uh, in the sense, he had very broad reading, and he was reviving, you know, an old uh, tradition in Europe of people who believe both in private property and in the possibility of a stateless society, meaning a society without a state, and convinced Murray of that. And, and let and and Murray was attached to the sort of Iron Rand view that you had to have a state to protect property, uh, pr- property, uh, provide courts, provide police, this kind of stuff. And Trotter I said, look, anywhere you look, you can see private police are better than government-provided police, which end up protecting criminals. I can tell you that's true. It really is well, true. We're, well, we're seeing that right now. I, I had a convenience we're, store owner uh, two weeks ago tell me that the state – I'm sorry about that change in my in my camera.
1: You, here. you were making a point. It was a good one. We needed a close-up here.
0: I <laughs> No, this is terrible. Gosh. Let's get back to normal. Okay.
1: <laughs> Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Okay.
0: <laughs> Crazy. Um, yeah, I'm going to turn that off now. Okay, back to normal. <laughs> all this smart technology isn't so smart after all. It's still in the first generation of it. But, you know, this convenience store owner, uh, he had a sign on his door that said, um, no pack- backpacks allowed. I said, why aren't backpacks allowed in here? He said, well, because people walk in, they fill up their backpack with goods, and they run out the door. I said, well, why don't you call the police? He said, the police, the police uh, do nothing. They protect the criminals. The police are on the side of the petty criminals. That's what he told me. And I was like, oh, this reminds me of what chodorov told Murray. Uh, another thing that he would point out about the question of courts, uh, the courts are you know, unbelievably unfair and incredibly inefficient. You would always rather go into private arbitration than courts, that should tell you something. And in terms of the protection of property, Rand always thought you needed a uh, government to protect private property, to assign titles and that sort of thing. Trotteroff would point out we have a long tradition in the Western world of title companies. The private markets themselves are very good at um, inf- enforcing and deducing and recording Who owns what? If you've ever tried to buy a house that doesn't have a clean title, you know this problem. You've got to have a clean title even now or else that exchange will not be made. Well, that's not because of the government. That's because of the banks and the title companies and your own personal interest. If you don't have a clean title, you're not going to be able to resell your house later. So there's this weird way in which all the things we think the state uh, is supposed to act on our behalf Actually, markets are better at doing those very things. There's another aspect to this, which is that it's actually quite dangerous to create a a state because, as Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You know, it's just a tendency that happens. We have yet to figure out a very good technology for restraining the state once we have it. We've tried kings, we've tried um, uh, constitutions, we've tried all sorts of things, and nothing really seems to work. Every time somebody gets power, they tend to abuse it. So putting all this together, you come up with a a kind of a a beautiful vision of what he called anarcho-capitalism, which is an orderly society that protects private property, protects human rights, but doesn't introduce the grave moral hazard of having a monopoly in power on power the, on the part of the state.
1: Well, we're about to see how this works in Argentina. He's now, what, been in office three, four weeks? Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, that's about, right, about a month. And I guess he's already started announcing uh, the shutdown of agencies. And yeah. you know, Argentina, as, as you know, was one of the wealthiest countries in the world at yeah. the, in 1900. And then bad ideas, socialism and, and worse, Marxism and seizing private property, all the things that we're saying uh, you ought not to do is exactly what they did. So they're, they're, they're an example, of an extreme example of this bad idea has gone, gone wild. He's now trying to bring that back into uh, in this alignment with something that we'd like to see happen, that the entrenched interests yeah. against him doing that are enormous. enormous. And he, he wants to shut down the agencies and then the world – you know the IMF and the World Bank—they're already opposed to what he wants to do—and so it, it'll it'll be. What's your uh, are you following this? And how do you I think?
0: am, I, but you know I don't speak Spanish, and so I have to rely on others to, to help me through it. I, <clears throat> I I wish him all the best, and my. F- my first thought on this so far is that it seems to be going well. He seems to understand the urgency of acting now. He passed a, you know, some new edicts, you know, abolishing all sorts of agencies. Let's hope he didn't consolidate them. You know, I would have to look at the details, but it looks, it looks so far pretty good. And it's getting rid of labor legislation, business regulation. Look, if he can act fast and we can fire up this, the freedom impulses within people and and inspire some ebullient optimism towards enterprise and protection of property and get rid of all the regulations of bureaucracies, we could see this economy turn around very quickly. Now, there are two enormous problems he's dealing with. One is the government spending angle because the uh, publicly funded pensions are the number one problem Argentina has right now. This is where the state has obligated itself to pay people, vast number of amounts of the population forever, you know, an enormous amount of money for doing absolutely nothing. I mean, this is like the equivalent of our social security, except much worse, actually. Um, So it doesn't just apply to public sector employees, although it does apply to them, it applies to vast numbers of the population. But, you know, it's weird because it obligates everybody else in the population to forever pay for these continuing obligations that are not actually funded. So what are you going to do? with those I don't really have the answer I've talked to a, a lot of his advisors a long time about this uh, there's no easy way you can maybe sell off the obligations to other you know I don't know maybe issue issue bonds that are going to be privately held I'm not sure how you cut those out uh, the other problem of course is the grave problem of, of the mo- monetary system
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: and and uh, he wants dollarization which is a great slogan but you have to have dollars in order to dollarize. He doesn't have dollars, at least not enough. Um, and the uh, the Argentinian currency is just, it's just not robust enough to really but, buy uh, the, but the,
1: the dollars. three The three countries in Central and South America, I can't remember, I think Panama has been in a dollar system from the early 1900s. And yeah. there's a couple others that don't spring to mind. Yeah. And, they've, and they've dollarized and it's worked.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree inflation with that. went
1: away. I are you sure this shortage of dollars is I think that's a technical issue that could be. Somebody clever like you and me could help them figure out. Well, In and the, you can
0: also sell off public enterprises, well, which I think go. is one of, one of the things he's considering doing, which is going to give rise to all sorts of complaints about cronyism and allowing bandits to take over national property. And there's going to be a lot of propaganda around that if he starts privatizing all the industries. And there are dangers associated with privatization for sure. It does introduce problems of cronyism, that sort of thing. But that could raise dollars. Uh, There are two. There's a good thing about dollarization and a bad thing. The good thing is that it gets rid of monetary policy, (laughs) right? Like we don't have discretionary monetary policy anymore, which is wonderful because it'll stabilize the currency that people use. Well, I'd like
1: to then. I'd like to dollarize the dollar. (laughs)
0: Yeah that's right. I, I know get, those
1: guys over there and I think they need they need, a, they, need a, they need a higher level of, uh, yeah. of authority and we,
0: uh, we need dollarization here right just to get rid of the discretionary <laughs> federal Reserve policy. yeah that's right. right. So it, it eliminates it creates a currency board but so you have a fixed basically a fixed supply of money or at least it only increases insofar as the dollars can flow into yeah. the country. And so it eliminates Keynesian monetary policy and dramatically reduces the chances of inflation. I mean, the bad part of it is that suddenly you're dependent on the dollar, right? And the Fed is not entirely trustworthy. And there's some people who believe that dollarized economies are more dependent upon the U.S. as a political entity and become, in effect, part of the U.S. empire.
1: Well, uh, but they're also now part of the Chinese empire. If yeah. All the governments <clears throat> of Central and South America are center-left or even Marxist, even Marxist and China through Belt and Road and the other things they've been doing yeah. has real influence in those, in those countries. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's a Chinese block. And I think if there were one thing we could do is to bring these countries into the dollar block and a little Americanization wouldn't hurt them. I think that well, people think would welcome the, it, but compared to really, the Chinese.
0: Yeah. Ideally what, Millet would do, and, I, and again, his advisors have said that he intends to do this is really establish a kind of a, a, um, a country with competitive currencies, so that yes, you have an official currency, the dollar, but that other things that trade with the dollar, for example, you know cryptocurrency, ethereum, or bitcoin, or whatever it is going to be, or gold or silver or whatever the thing is, or some other foreign currency can also be used in payment of taxes and public debts and that sort of thing. So you have a society with many uh, currencies floating around. Now, you know what's interesting about this? Americans cannot conceive of it. I mean, we just can't. I mean, for some, Americans just think you can only have one currency in one country and that's it. In most parts of the world, people understand that's not true. Um, I I learned this years ago when I was... uh, I uh, went to Nicaragua under Daniel Ortega sometime in the nineteen eighties, and I was astonished to see seven and eight year old kids out on the streets beating the official exchange rate of the Nicaraguan peso or whatever it is uh, relative to the dollar. They were they were trading and arbitraging currencies. <laughs> I mean, these kids kids didn't little- <laughs> Young kids are seven to eight years old with better math skills than, you know, graduate <laughs> students at Harvard. Uh, <laughs> and they're able to communicate what the the market exchange rates are. I mean, like most people in the world are very good at, at dealing with multiple currencies. They, they can keep the math in their head. It's just a matter of. Well, that was Europe
1: before the time. Europe as well. Remember traveling around Europe with pockets full of this, that and the other thing and.
0: Yeah. And it's <laughs> even true in Canada now. You can use yeah. U.S. dollars or, you know, but it's only Americans are some of the, one of the few people in the world that really believe there only can be one currency in a country. And that's just not true. So ideally, and, and by the way, Milley understands this and his, his, his advisors do, that a competitive currency situation would be the ideal outcome. So not just full dollar monopolization, but really a genuine competitive currency environment.
1: I wanted to get away a little bit from the technical to the philosophical and the human. There are a lot of people, including me, that thinks in America freedom has lost its uh, ver- its status as an ideal for an awful lot of people. And we live in a society where people feel like victims and the people ought to be taken care of, protected. And freedom and self-determination go hand in hand. And what Millet, Millet is proposing is something where people begin to take charge of their own lives again and they've got to function in a way that's uh, you know uh, self self-reliant self-protective taken care of and a lot of people don't want that and a lot of people have fallen into bad habits as part of the uh, the the you know the, the state uh, providing everything yeah. I think that we have that problem here and what do you think about the the cultural habits that he's going to be forced to change to make it work there.
0: That's empowering and thrilling. I think so. Yeah. And you think so,
1: but I'm not so sure. I don't know. I don't don't know know the word. I don't know the worthy, uh, you know, the
0: human human person is built with creativity, imagination, and a longing to be free. They I just quite agree. Need to be reminded of it from time to time and have leaders yeah. that strongly believe in it and preach it. I, I strongly believe in preaching the idea of freedom. It's one of the things that drove me out of my mind about, about uh, uh, Obama, President Obama. I mean, he was so erudite and so intelligent, so well read. And he could do you know, interviews lasting hours where you could <clears> reprint <throat> every sentence. And it was always so impressive. But there's one word he never said. And that word was freedom. He just didn't yeah. really believe in it, and it was my problem with the Bushes too. They didn't seem to believe in it, and uh, uh, I don't know. B- Biden, the last time I've heard him say the word freedom was was about uh, uh, forget your freedom. You need to get your shot. So <laughs> uh, you remember those days, right? And, the, oh, and yeah. the people online were spell- spelling freedom freedom with a you know m, m- b at the end. So, yeah, it's tragic how American culture has just been consumed by this sense of dependency and despotism, and it's highly dangerous. Like, we sing about freedom in our patriotic songs, but do we really believe in it and practice it in our public lives anymore? It seems like- Not much. Not much. Not much anymore. So, you know, God bless Emile for at least talking about it. He's talking the talk, and he's walking the walk a little bit, too. Um, I hope we don't have to decline as far as Argentina did before we- we turned the uh, turned turn the corner. I mean, the lockdowns were a transformative moment for America because we experienced the fullness of uh, total control of our lives, churches, weddings, even domestic capacity restrictions. Where we could travel, um, it ruined so much. It ruined enterprise, ruined millions of businesses.
1: Well, at uh, at-, at, at Brownstone, you've gathered some of the best thinkers around who are very concerned about this issue, is there a consensus there about how we get Americans to start reclaiming the notion of their freedom, independence? uh,
0: Yeah, uh, I think if there is a consensus, and um, I have so many very, very smart people who have a history on the left, um, or maybe in the middle, or maybe a little bit conservative, but nobody cares about this nonsense anymore when you're in the middle of a crisis like this i would say if there's a consensus at brownstone and, and we frankly we don't talk about politics much or political ideology much but everybody agrees we need human rights and freedom and if we could start by enforcing the bill of rights as we originally understood the term and having an ideal of constitutional government yeah. that would just that would be great so the it's really frustrating the answers are there for us I mean, they're right in front of us. We know what the answers are, but getting from here to there, it's gonna require things that people are really not prepared to do. And you've got a whole ruling class now that's so dependent upon this gigantic administrative state apparatus, these trillions of dollars in spending, and we've got all these debts and so much crony, cronyism everywhere. You know How you unravel that, I don't know. Miele's trying to figure out a way out of this. This is an ex- really important experiment for us as Americans because we're going to face this problem. We have never actually seen and uh, I would say in all of history a modern industrialized developed country with a constitu- with a democratic government um, reform itself away from the social wow. democratic administrative state, rule, with gigantic governments and gigantic government spending. We saw reform taking place in the old socialist countries in Eastern Europe and Russia. We've seen reforms here and there. A little bit of reform in the 1980s here, that was a good start. But the kind of big reforms that we need that's really gonna fire up freedom and give it new life and energy in our time, we have yet to really see what that looks like in a modernized uh, industrial democracy like the US. So if it can happen in Argentina, then it can happen in the U.S. too.
1: Well, let's 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 continue this conversation. Let's follow, root for him, help him, whatever we can do, and uh, I think also show that example to Americans. Yeah. Uh, where can we? Where, your 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 website is brownstoneinstitute.org.
0: That's right. And I, I, write, I try I'm trying to write more and more for Brownstone, but I write every day for, for Epoch Times, too.
1: I don't even want to think about your writing schedule, Jeffrey. You spend 22 hours a day writing as near as I can yeah. tell.
0: It is a, it's, uh, sometimes gets out of control. I noticed yesterday <laughs> that I had had five articles in Epoch Times in two days. Okay, that's a little out of control. <laughs> well, they're good, though. Keep it up. <laughs> well, <thank laughs> if you. I'm your editor, I'm saying, you know, I'm going to tie this guy to his, to his laptop. Right. <laughs> it's fun, but, you know, there's so much to write about about and our crisis the crisis of our times is so overwhelming and so many of the threats are so ominous like i really do believe that we all have a obligation to throw ourselves into the struggle and thank you for your podcast because you really have and you're doing a lot of good but it's going to take a lot of us doing a lot of things to get us out of this mess it's probably going to consume the better part of most of the rest of our lives Mm -hmm. and that's okay but yes i brownstone is my is my baby. I love it. And we're uh, a nice new um, think tank, I guess, but I think of it as a research institute. We have working groups on censorship, working groups on pandemic planning and the world health organization and starting a new working group on um, central bank digital currencies and the problem there and monetary.
1: I've done some work on that too. So, well, this is, all right, well, you're, you're in, I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. Uh, We will uh, keep pushing uh, this, trying to educate people and, and get get people used to the idea of freedom again, so Jeffrey Tucker, founder of Brownstone Institute, great thinker, uh, charming, charming rock on tour. Hail fellow, well met. I yeah, can go on and are. on. anyway, thank you, and I'll see you again in a month or two or three or whenever we get back to talk about the next uh, the next big idea. It's a pleasure, and thanks so much for all you do. Okay, thanks.